Hear the word of the Lord from John 4, 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you are new here, we have been worshiping God in this rented building for the past 11 and a half years. And we planted this church with a few friends 12 years ago, and now we've grown to well over 400 people who call Sacred City Church their home. And last year, God called us to begin, to, um, to begin looking to purchase our new home, our own building. It began with a lot of prayer. Then we moved towards um, raising some money for a potential down payment, even though we had not seen any decent buildings that could fit us on the market for the past several years. Through the Spirit of God stirring up the hearts of God's people, we raised over a quarter of a million dollars at an 
our year event, our year end advanced capital campaign in December. We got our down payment. Uh, but we just didn't have a building to use for that, you know, on that, that, that down payment. So we kept praying. And um, about a month later, we contacted Hope Church in Bettendorf and asked them if they were wanting uh, to sell their building and if we could come take a look at it. They were, and we did. And a few weeks later, we made them an offer and they accepted it. Now, for the last several months, we have demoed nearly the entire building. We had phase one, phase two, and phase three, and we chose phase everything. So everything is getting a facelift just about in our building. Only a couple things are not going to be touched. Um, we've rebuilt all the offices and classrooms to fit our needs. We've doubled the amount of classrooms uh, that we currently have. We've doubled them. I think we have nine over there now so that we can go to one service together. We've redesigned the stage and the balcony to accommodate more seating. At this point, I think we should be able to comfortably fit 500 people into the sanctuary. We've opened up a really narrow uh, and small and um, out of level entryway and we've leveled it all and we've opened it all up into a grand open and hospitable atrium. It is all framed up now and our electrician and HVAC guys began putting in the mechanicals this week. Hopefully they'll be done by the end of the week or by the end of next week and we can start drywalling. We're doing all of this because we believe that God has called us to establish a strategic base of ministry where our families can all worship together under one roof and where we can reach out from to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have purchased a building and we are remodeling a building and we plan on moving into this building for one main reason, and that's worship. We want to worship, we want our kids to worship, and we want our city to worship King Jesus, and we believe this building will help us accomplish that mission. And surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, if you've been around here for a while, because this is how God usually works, our text today of Scripture is about the same thing. It's about worship. And if you don't know, we just preach through books of the Bible. So we just take a book, we've taken the Gospel of John, and we're working week after week, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. We want our people to understand what the Bible teaches. And so we're just studying verse by verse um, the book of John, and today we come to this topic of worship. Our text today, this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, it's actually all about worship. Now, you might be here and think, oh my goodness, I don't want to hear this message. I don't really care about worship. I'm not into going to church. I don't really, I think singing's kind of weird, right? And since I don't really do this kind of stuff, this sermon's probably not going to be for me. Well, actually, you'd be quite wrong. The fact of the matter is that everyone worships. To worship, it's just another word of giving your attention, your time, your devotion, your affections, your desires, your emotions, your money, giving of yourself towards someone or something. That's worship. When you give, you're worshiping. Everyone worships. Everyone serves someone or something with their life. Bob Dylan saying, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. 
You got I always say it like this. Think of your heart and your life as a garden hose. It's just pouring out. You can't turn the hose off. The, the fact of the matter is every human being is going to give towards something. Every human being is going to have to focus their attention, their worship, their love somewhere. Your only choice is where do you point the garden hose? Do you point it at things of the world or do you point it at the creator of all things? I would add to Bob Dylan, it might be yourself. It might be money. It might be sex. It might be influence and success. It might be your kids or your social media followers. But everyone worships. Everyone serves somebody or something with their life. And what we're going to learn today from Jesus is that if you point the garden hose of your life at anything other than Jesus, it will let you down. Anything but Jesus will put your life into a pattern that brings about greater and greater levels of dissatisfaction. I want you to hear that. If you point your worship at anything other than Jesus, the first time you do it, it'll feel okay. And the next time, less so, less so, less so. The more you worship something other than Jesus, the more dissatisfaction you will bring into your life. Now, we've got a lot to do to help us understand this passage of Scripture, this interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. But before we do, let me say that today's passage is going to urge us to ask two questions, two very important questions. Number one, have I personally acknowledged my spiritual thirst? Have I personally acknowledged my spiritual thirst? And two, am I aware of how I am attempting to quench that spiritual thirst. Second question, am I aware of how I am attempting to quench my spiritual thirst? Now, until you answer those two questions, Jesus will never make much sense to you. He'll just kind of go right over your head until you answer those two questions. But after you answer those questions, Jesus will become to you everything you've been looking for in life. So if you are here this morning and you aren't happy, you aren't fulfilled in life or you're confused and struggling, maybe dealing with feelings of guilt and shame, or maybe you're just confused about the meaning of life. Jesus got you here this morning. Jesus is pursuing you today. He got you here. He brought you here for a reason. And he wants to meet you here this morning and change your life for the better and for the rest of your life. Let me pray for us and we can begin. God, you are gracious, that you are eternal and we are not, that you've been working in history long before we came into this world. We're finite. We can't get our minds around your infinity. You just, you go on and on and on and it's hard for us to get our mind around that. And so you reveal yourself to us in your word. You speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And so, this morning, I come to you as a sinful man, and I ask that you would help me and think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that your people would hear your voice this morning, that you would speak to them from your word. God, we also want to pray for Isla this morning. We thank you for the ways that you've been healing her body. We thank you for the ways and the wisdom that you've given the doctors. We thank you for all the technological advances. We thank you for all of that, but we also thank you for the fact that uh, the doctors still can't explain how she's uh, improving and how she's 
doing better. And we, we just know that you are a God that heals. You are a God that does work. And so we continue to pray for her to just keep her, her attitude up, her spirits up, and just continue to heal, continue to work, and continue to protect. We pray for this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. And amen. If you could open up your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to begin there, but listen, I hate to do this to you, but we're going to have to do some backstory. Now, some of you, 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 when I start talking history, your eyes glaze over, all right? I'm going to ask you to try to stay focused here because this is important if you're going to understand what happens or where we're going with the rest of our text this morning. Um, There's a lot of things going on in the background, okay, to this story. And it's got its beginning in the Old Testament. If you don't know, the Bible's made up of two Testaments. Think of it as the Old Testament and the New Testament, or stuff that happened, uh, you know, six to 3,000 years ago, and then stuff that happened about 2,000 years ago. That's the two Testaments, okay? And Jesus here is going to reference a lot of stuff that happened in the Old Testament. If you know, the region that Jesus lived in, we today call the Holy Land. And the Holy Land is made up of three distinct regions. Judea, which is in the south. Galilee, which is in the north. And Samaria, that lies between. Okay? Now listen, the Jewish people lived in Judea and Galilee, and the Samaritans lived in Samaria. Well, the Samaritans were basically a cult. Okay? And they were despised by the Jews. So here's the situation. Jews live in the north and the south. Samaritans live in between. And these two groups of people hate each other. Okay? Imagine, you know, 70 years ago, our, our uh, society was kind of split in some, well, even longer than that, but was split between the north and the south. And think about the animosity between the north and the south during that time. Well, that kind of feeling was going on between Samaria and Jews. And let me explain uh, why. About a thousand years before Jesus uh, comes on the scene here, if you remember when we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, we learned about Assyria. And Assyria, so Jerusalem worshiped the one true God, and yet they turned and started worshiping idols. And so God said effectively, oh, you want to worship idols? Then I'll give you over to those nations. And those pagan nations came in and they ransacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They tore down the wall. They destroyed the city. And then what they do? They took the best and the brightest among them, all the cultural elites, any craftsman, any wise man, any beautiful woman, the best and the brightest in the city. They took them back to Assyria to assimilate them into their own culture, to take that culture that was being produced in Jerusalem and build upon it. All the technology, all the advancement, they wanted it for themselves. So what did that do? That left the bottom of the barrel of society, right? I hate to say it like this. That left all the ugly girls. That left all the untalented guys, all the broke folks. They all got left back in Jerusalem. And now these people have no temple to worship the God, their God in. They've got no wall to protect them. Their, eco, their economic um, situation is horrible because the Syrians just raised the city, right? So th- th- it's, it's really difficult back in Jerusalem. And the best and the brightest of the Jews got brought back to Assyria. Well, what happens is eventually the people that are in Jerusalem do the one thing they should not do. 
And that was that God told them, do not intermarry with the other nations, right? This wasn't an ethnic thing. It was a religious thing. These other nations worshiped other gods. And if you marry into their religion, they're going to pull your heart away to worship other gods. Well, what do they do? Of course, they're... <laughs> All the ugly girls are looking around and all that's left is broke dudes. And they're like, no, I'm going to this guy over here even though he's a pagan, right? So they go and marry the pagans and then what happens? Well, it, they, 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 it turns their heart away from their God and they begin to worship false gods, okay? This is how the Samar- this is where the Samaritans came from. Well, if you remember... From Ezra and Nehemiah, when Ezra and Nehemiah come back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, the Samaritans say, oh yeah, you're back. We'll help you. And, the, and the, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah go, nope, you get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. They called them half-breeds because they were kind of, they half-worshipped God and they half-worshipped pagan gods. They were pagans. They said, we don't want anything to do with you. You get out of here. We're worshiping the true God and we're rebuilding the city. Well, what happened was one Jew gets really mad, marries a Samaritan woman. Ezra and Nehemiah won't let them worship with them. So he says, fine, I'll go do my own thing. He goes up to another mountain away from Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, which is another famous mountain where Isaac and, and Abraham offered their sacrifices in the Old Testament. And he says, fine, we'll build our own temple. We'll build our own mountain. We'll build our own religion. And so they built a temple on Mount Gerizim and started worshiping there. And that's where the Samaritans worshiped. Okay? So all of this is, is going on. In 2 Kings 17, it says that the Samaritans, while they were worshiping up there, they even gave their children to be sacrificed to other gods. So they were fully pagan. And yet they kept, it was weird, they kept the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, they kept it. So they kind of kept the first five books of the Old Testament, and yet they also worshiped pagan gods. That's why I say it was a cult. Well, when the Jews who had been deported, Ezra and Nehemiah, when all these guys heard about this, they were furious, right? And they said, okay, we, we can't stand these people. They're false worshipers. We don't want to have anything to do with them. Well, that continued for about 300 years. Until about 120 years before Jesus, the Jews got so sick of that false worship and that false temple that they walk into Samaria through Sychar, the same town we're going to see in our text today. They go up to the top of Mount Gerizim where the temple is and they just raise the temple. They just destroy it. Right? They declare war on the Samaritans and their false religion. Well, think about this. 120 years later, here comes Christ, and these people hate each other. Right? This is, this is like the animosity, similar to the animosity that we had early on in, our, in the, the founding of our country. They're living right next to each other, but hate each other. This animosity is racial. It's cultural, it's ethnic, and it's religious. They all hate each other at a heart level, and now they're, they're, they're neighbors. They live right next to each other. So if you're a Jew and you want to go from the south to the north, you either got to go through Samaria or you got to take the long way around to avoid them. Well, that's all going on in the backstory of this story with Jesus and the Samaritan that we need to understand. So let's jump in to chapter 4, verse 1. We can begin reading. <clears throat> now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard 
that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he's going from the south to the north. He has to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Old Testament story. Jacob's well was there. This well was between 100 and 200 feet. How do I know that? Because you can go to the Holy Land now. You can still see this well. And the well currently is still 100 feet deep. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Here's the idea. Jesus wakes up, wakes up early, more, like, more, more than likely at dawn, and he heads out on this journey. He's been marching all day. He's, he's tired. He gets to this well. It's the sixth hour. That means it was about noon. He probably left at sunrise. He's been marching six or seven hours. It's the hottest part of the day. Jesus finds this well. He sits down for a drink. One, this shows us the humanity of Jesus. We've learned already Jesus is clearly divine. He is the son of God. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He come, came from heaven. He came down to this earth to be born of a, of, a, of a virgin woman. That's hard to believe. Yeah, so is the creation of the world out of nothing. <laughs> Choose your miracle, right? You can believe in the Big Bang or you can believe that God spoke into existence. Choose your miracle. Both of them are miracles. So yeah, it's a miracle. Jesus was the son of God. He entered this world, but he's also man. So he's not like Superman that bullets bounce off of him, right? He's fully human. And so he's tired after this long journey. Now look at verse 7. Here's where the plot thickens. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now this is important. In Jesus' day, especially in this region, which is very hot, the well, the common well, was a meeting place where community was built. People would meet together. They would ask each other how their days were. They would check in. How's the family? How are things? How are the crops? All this kind of stuff. It was like the modern day coffee shop. If you've ever lived in a small town, you know what this is like. There's always a local watering hole. There's always a bar, there's always a restaurant, there's always a gas station, there's always a place where people go to build community. Well, in Jesus' day, this was the well. The problem is, from our text, this woman is going to the well at noon, which, if you're familiar with that culture, this would be really weird. The well was about a mile, a mile and a half outside of town. The, at noon is the hottest period of the day. This is equivalent to your neighbor mowing at noon. Does your neighbor mow at noon? Do you mow at noon? Only if you have to, right? You mow early, you mow late. Nobody, only crazy people mow in the middle of the day, <laughs> right? Same with this woman. Now, why is this woman going to the well in the middle of the day, in the hottest day? She would have had to carry her big jug of water in the hottest part of the day, load it all up, and then carry it back. And she's doing it by herself. Well, typically, the women would go do this first thing in the morning. During the cool of the day, to make the long walk a little more bearable and to have more enjoyable and pleasurable conversation with other women when it's not, the sun's not beating down on you, right? So they would all start their day out going to the well, fetching their water and talking with one another and checking up. But this woman was different. And we will soon learn why 
She isn't accepted with the other women in the morning. She was an immoral woman. She was a sexually loose woman. Now these are important details because Jesus, the Son of God, is about to interact with her. And these social cues and details are important to the story. Here's some of those details. One, she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. Not only a Jew, the Jew. Let's just say it like that. The Son of God. She's in a cult, so Jesus should, like, by rights, have nothing to do with her. You worship the false god. We, the, us Jews have nothing to do with you. On those grounds alone, Jesus should have nothing to do with her. Secondly, she's an immoral woman. Not even her own people, the Samaritans, want anything to do with her. She is literally on the bottom of the social hierarchy in Samaria. She's got no real friends. She's got no social capital. She's made a huge mess of her life, so bad that even the crazy cult worshiping Samaritans don't want anything to do with her. You remember this social hierarchy if you went to public high school? You walk into the lunchroom, there it is. Jocks right? The math nerds, right? The preps, the ones that wear all black, the ones that wear all rainbow. And here's this one woman in the back all by herself. Rejected by the whole hierarchy. She comes in the hottest part of the day with her well, or with her pot to the well, no one wants anything to do with her. Now, let me just say here, this woman was spiritually lost, lonely, and she was sexually confused. I draw your attention to these facts because I think they characterize many people in our own city today. Millennials and the younger generation Z, especially... They claim to be spiritual, but don't know what God they're trying to talk to. They don't know Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only way to the Father. The God who came to us to show us what God is like. They are, many experts say, the loneliest generation to ever exist, spending so much of their time staring at their phones and video games, forgetting how to interact with humans socially face-to-face. And they are completely sexually confused because they have rejected their creator who says that he has created them in his image, male and female, for the opposite sex in marriage. Human beings have believed this for millennia and now we've rejected it. And sexual confusion and chaos is coming because of it. Now, there are many cultural commentators, many people out there wringing their hands over these facts. What are we going to do? What is society going to do? Everybody's pointing their fingers from one political party to the next. Many pastors are struggling to reach these type of people. What are we, how are we going to reach these people who are so lonely, so sexually confused, and so spiritually lost? Well, Jesus shows us the way. This is nothing new. Jesus loves the lost. Jesus loves sinners and he came to save them. Jesus saves 
cult members. Jesus saves and cleanses immoral people. Jesus loves lonely people so much he adopts them into his family and gives them a new community. What we're going to see in this story today is Jesus is the greatest missionary who has ever come. And Jesus came from heaven to this earth to meet us where we are, to find us where we are, and to quench our spiritual thirst. And Jesus does all of this at the great risk of his own reputation. See, we sang that song. It was kind of weird, maybe, for some of you to sing that song like, we don't fear anymore. We're, we're running away from our fear. We believe that we've been adopted by God and we're in the family of God. But so much of what we do in life is because we fear to lose the approval of other people. And Jesus here didn't care what everybody's going to say about him. All the Jews, when the disciples get back, they're like, oh, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. He's crossing all kind of cultural taboos and cultural phobos. And Jesus doesn't care what everybody thinks. He comes to seek and save the lost. Jesus speaks to this woman, even though in the eyes of man, it was the wrong thing to do. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So that right away, Jesus crosses a cultural line that gets this woman attention. Whoa, someone is speaking to me. Like she, Jesus isn't speaking down to her the way a Jew would normally speak down to a Samaritan woman, right? Men didn't have this type of relationship with women, right, back then. And all of a sudden, Jesus is breaking all these cultural standards. And he says, woman, would you give me a drink? And whoa, she's like, you're asking something from me, a Samaritan? You're having something to do with me? Why are you even... Speaking with me. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoa, this is, this is where Jesus starts to flip the script. This is some creative wordplay. Jesus was a master rhetorician. He was an amazing public speaker. And he begins to weave this narrative and play with a metaphor that this is, here's this, this whole story, is this is a, a metaphor that's going to go over her head. It's going to spin around out there in the universe a little bit. Then it's going to come back and hit her in the back of the head later and she's going to be thankful for it, okay? That's what this narrative is about to do. She, he says, woman, give me a drink. She's like, why are you talking to me? And then she's, he says, if you, would, if you knew who I am, you would have asked me for a drink and I could give you a gift. I could give you eternal life. I could give you living water. This, is, this living water whoop, goes right over her head. All right? In the Old Testament, living water was a metaphor for salvation. And salvation, salvation is hard to describe because salvation doesn't mean just going to heaven when you die. Salvation means everything that's broken in your life being renewed. Everything that's lost being restored. 
Salvation is full human flourishing. It's renewal, it's blessing, it's healing, it's forgiveness. It's a metaphor for God meeting all of our human needs, religious needs, social needs, psychological needs, all of our needs being met. The prophet Zechariah, he says that when living waters flow out over all the earth, everything will be healed. He says the desert places will bloom Okay? Think of the desert places being turned into the rainforest. When God's living waters flow over anything, all sins are forgiven, all pain is removed, the whole of creation will be made new. In the words of Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings, everything sad will come untrue. That's in the Old Testament when it talked about living waters, that's what living waters do. So Jesus offers this woman amazingly good news and we might miss it. Because he says this, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for this gift and I would give it to you, eternal life, everything that you want in life, nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing broken. And it's a gift. Now, you need to hear this. Too many people and every other religion in the world is basically a ladder propped up to the wall that you can climb to get yourself to heaven. Be good enough, be smart enough, be moral enough. Here's the rules, obey the rules, and you can get to God. Christianity, if it's a ladder at all, it's a ladder that Jesus Christ climbs down to come to be with us. And he offers eternal life. He offers this living water as a gift. You would ask me for it, and I would give it to you. This morning, Jesus offers it to you. Will you ask for it? problem is here in our text she doesn't think she needs it she totally misses it look at verse 11 the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep metaphor over the head basically she's like living water huh well you don't have a bucket So how are you going to get water without no bucket? That's, this is metaphor gone. Jesus, patient and kind, right? He keeps the conversation going, all right? The woman said to him, oh, you have nothing. The the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, she doesn't know what she's saying. Jacob dug the well. This is a great well. She's like, this guy offers living water, doesn't have a bucket. This guy's probably crazy. She says, are you better than Jacob? Jesus humbly doesn't answer her, but his real answer is, yeah. (laughs) Actually, I made Jacob (laughs) and water itself, actually, the whole world, okay? So I'm kind of a big deal, all right? But this is what she says. He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his son his life. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, so the physical water that's in this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So Jesus here is talking about a different type of thirst, not a physical thirst, a deeper thirst, a spiritual thirst, a religious thirst, a thirst from our soul. And he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So there's something about this thirst that is eternal that can only be quenched with eternal life. 
This living water that Jesus offers here is nothing other than the spiritual thirst quencher that he calls eternal life. And again, eternal life isn't just living forever. It's a certain type of life. There's a Greek word called zoe, and it's, it's translated life and life more abundantly. It's human flourishing at its highest level. It's a relationship with our creator that satisfi satisfies our deepest longings in our soul. That's what Jesus, Jesus is offering her everything. I know you've got cravings. I know you've got desires. I know you've got needs. I know there's something eternal that's aching within you. And I promise I will meet it for you by grace if you ask me for it. Problem is, she doesn't know she needs it. Verse 15. This woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, look, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He's saying, I will meet your deepest needs. She's like, never having to come to well would be nice. Right? She's thinking, indoor plumbing? Indoor plumbing? Whew. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Well, that's a turn. Jesus says, are you thirsty? I'll meet your deepest needs. I'll meet your deepest longings. She says, yes, I want it. He says, go get your husband. I know how most of the ladies I know would respond to that. What do you mean go get my husband? I'm here right now. You tell me. I don't need him, right? What do you mean go get your husband? But what does she do? She says, well, actually, I don't, I don't have a husband. What is Jesus doing here? Verse 15. <clears throat> Sir, give me this water so I don't have to draw. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. What's he doing? Jesus seems to be changing the subject, but he's not. Here's the idea. We are all born into this world spiritually thirsty. We crave eternal life. C.S. Lewis says we have a God-sized hole in our heart that nothing but God can fill. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity in the human heart. In other words, we want things that nothing on this earth can fill except for eternity itself. We want to live forever. We want to know God, our creator. We want to be loved by the one who can never sin against us. We want to know truth, capital T truth. We want to be good. We want to perceive beauty and be caught up in something beautiful and God is the source of that capital T truth and God is the source of that capital G goodness and God is the source of that capital B beauty. That is who he is in his essence. We have no other way to define truth, goodness, and beauty if we don't have a divine standard, an ultimate standard that everyone must agree to. The problem is all of that our desire for that is a spiritual thirst for God and it can only be quenched by and through Jesus. 
but we try to use everything else in our life to quench that spiritual thirst. This woman was lonely, despised and rejected, and instead of going to God to quench her spiritual thirst, she had been going to men. And man after man after man, men only made her more spiritually thirsty. The Bible calls this idolatry. When you are seeking something that only God can give, but you're seeking it from something of creation. You need ultimate meaning, you want ultimate value, ultimate purpose, and you go to your work to find that. And the problem with your work is that you'll ne it, it never quenches. So you get the promotion or you're really successful and you feel great for a moment and then tomorrow you wake up with that nagging thing in the back of your mind that says, do it again, only better this time. And it drives you and drives you and drives you. See, you're thirsty for meaning, you're thirsty for purpose, you're thirsty for something eternal, and you're going to something created to get it, and it never satisfies. It always is promises that it's going to satisfy you, but the more you drink of it, the more you eat of it, the more you taste of it, the more thirsty you become. Idolatry never satisfies. It only makes things worse. It's like trying to quench your thirst with salt water. You think it's going to help, but all it does is dehydrate you. Rockefeller famously said, how much money is enough? He said, a little bit more. Never satisfies. Never happy. Never fulfilled. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. In other words, the dude you're shacked up with and sleeping with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus here, listen, this is important. He uncovers her spiritual thirst and puts his finger on the very specific way that she has been trying to quench that thirst herself. He's not doing this to shame her. He's not doing this just to expose her, right? Just to call her out publicly. He's doing this because he's a physician who's, who's revealing the wound in order to heal it. She's lonely. She's gone to men to fill that need and it's only made her more lonely. She's here at this well all by herself. Everyone's rejected her. Nobody wants anything to do with her and the man she's got now won't even put a ring on it. Look how her life has turned out. She's tried to quench her thirst, her spiritual thirst herself, and look how it's turned out. She's been married five times, which is almost unheard of in that day and age. On top of that, the man she's sleeping with now doesn't want to marry her. She was being used by him, and she was using her body to try to quench her spiritual thirst. This reminds me this was written 2,000 years ago. And we say, oh, we've moved on past this. We're way beyond this. We've evolved. This song was written a few years ago, and it just reminded me. It, it, it's called Take Me to Church by Hozier. Here's how the song begins. My lover's got humor. She's the giggle at a funeral. Knows everybody's disapproval. 
I should have worshipped her sooner. If the heavens ever did speak, she's the last true mouthpiece. Every Sunday's getting more bleak, a fresh poison each week. We were born sick, you heard them say. My church offers no absolutes. She tells me, worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love it. It's a great picture of the common grace that God gives to all mankind, that this artist can recognize the spiritual thirst. I was born sick. I'm a worshiper. I desire something bigger and better than myself. And yet, it shows us how lost spiritually they are because they're still going. They know it's never going to satisfy worshiping in the bedroom, and yet they still go there to try to find their meaning and purpose in life. They correctly diagnose the problem. We're spiritually lost. We're spiritually thirsty. And yet they do not diagnose the cure. They miss the cure. Look at verse 19. We're about to have another twist. and It's going to get even weirder. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, holy crap, how do you know me? <laughs> this dude found my journal, right? How do you know me? No, I, you know, that's, that's what she says, right? Okay. And then it gets weird. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now remember, I set this up in the very beginning. The Jews worshiped at Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshiped at Mount Gerizim. And now all of a sudden, she's getting real theological. Hey, where's the right place to worship? Which temple should we worship? Now, I used to think that this was like a juke here. She's juking him. She's trying to get him up. She's like, go get your husband. She's like, oh, no, let's talk about worship. Like, we're not talking about my past. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk theology. But I, I no longer think that's the case. I don't think she was changing the subject. See, she starts talking about temples and worship. She's talking about where true worship was supposed to take place. Is it the Jewish temple or the Samaritan temple? She's not changing the subject. Remember, the temple is where you worship. It's where you go to be forgiven. It's where you go to get yourself cleansed from your sins. It's where you go to get right with God, to have your soul satisfied, to deal with your guilt and your shame over your mistakes of your past. In other words, the temple is where you go to worship. It's where you go to quench your thirst. But look, but worship is the way that we attempt to quench our spiritual thirst. So the temple is where you go to get your spiritual thirst quenched. And worship is the way that you actually do that. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, when God comes in and saves us, when, G when we meet Jesus, we are to worship God this way. God, I am now yours. You made me, you saved me, you redeemed me, you're renewing me. How do you want me? 
to live my life. My body is now yours. Now listen, what's interesting, that's just what worship is. When you're worshiping in the bedroom, this woman's been worshiping men, she did the same thing. She gave her body as a spiritual act of worship. She's just worshiping the false god. And she's getting negative results from an idol. That's what they give us. Worship is giving ourselves to someone or something. It's pouring out our life towards something. It's pouring out our attention, time, affection, service, money in a certain direction. Everyone does it. This woman's went towards men. She literally worshiped men by giving them her body, and yet all it did was make her more spiritually thirsty. Husband or man doesn't even love her. All the women have rejected her. Now this, interestingly enough, is actually the source of all sin. People talk about sin and they don't understand. Did you know you never, you never commit one sin? They always come in twos. Sin's, sin always comes in twos. This is how the prophet Jeremiah describes it. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sin always comes in twos. Here's what happens. If you steal, before you steal, you've turned away from the fountain of living waters. God has not satisfied you, so you think you need to steal in order to meet one of your needs. So you've rejected God, the source of eternal life, the source of living waters, and you go after another cistern. You go after some other way to meet your need, right? Every sin is like this. You turn away from God, you reject God, and then you do something else. This woman had these desires in her. She turned away from God and pursued men. The question for us this morning is this. How do you do that? Listen, I'm not asking you if you do that. You're a human being made in the image of God. I know you do it. We're all born sick. We're all born sinners. We worship things other than God. I'm asking you, how do you do that? What are you currently worshiping? How are you currently trying to satisfy your spiritual thirst with something other than God? Let me show you the good news here. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, I'm about to make both temples obsolete. Big news, Jesus is the temple himself. He is where you go to meet God now. He's destroyed the temple. His body is the temple now. He takes it to the cross. He takes the wrath of God for us. He covers all of our sin. He gives us freedom. He gives us righteousness. He gives us forgiveness. Jesus is all of that. Now keep reading. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Messiah, the one who will make all things new, came through the line of the Jews. Look, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now look at this. For the Father, God, is seeking such people to worship him. 
Now, I want you to see the absolute grace of God here. This woman who had been rejected by everybody in her society, she'd been rejected by men, God from heaven is seeking worshipers and she's the one he comes after. God the Father sends Jesus to this broken woman to show us the heart of God. If I'm in heaven and I'm looking down and I'm picking teams, we all were at recess, I don't pick this girl. That's not who I pick to be on my team. But God does. Why? He's not like us. His thoughts are above us. His ways are not our ways. He's gracious and kind and slow to anger and forgiving. And so God looks down from heaven and sees this lost and broken, lonely woman. And he sends Jesus on a mission in the hottest part of the day to walk through Samaria, to meet at this well, and to tell this woman this story. Jesus comes after us. That's grace. That's the story of the Bible. It's not be better, do, do more, and God will like you. It's we're sinful, we're broken, we're busted up, and Jesus came to save us. God isn't saying, come to me, come find me, clean yourself up, and then we can talk. Jesus shows us here that the heart of God, what the heart of God is towards lost sinners like us. He is seeking such people to worship him. Listen, I'll be honest, as I'm working over at the building and I've got these 500 seats, you know, and I'm getting a little nervous, like, oh, we made a big investment over here, and what if nobody shows up? I said, well, if nobody shows up, then I'm preaching to the angels in the empty seats. That's what's going to happen. Listen, we can be confident that when we open that building, God's going to fill those seats, God's going to fill that building. Why? Because God is pursuing sinners right now. We've got more, listen, we've got more sexually broken, more lonely, more spiritually confused people in our city than ever before. Good. You know what that tells me as a fisherman? There's a lot of fish in that pond. That's what I want to know. Are there fish in there? Yeah. Good. I got a good shot then, right? There's people that need Jesus in this city. Man. Verse 24. Then we'll close. I'm getting a little excited. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, in order to worship God, listen, you've got to receive the gift. You can't do it in your strength. You can't do it in your flesh. You have to receive the gift of eternal life, that eternal water. You have to say, yes, God, I need it and I want it. And if you're real, I'll take it. And then God gives us his Holy Spirit and then we can worship him in truth. She goes this, she says this, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah, Messiah, is the one they're looking for to make all things new. The one that every story of every hero points to Jesus, who is called the Christ, the anointed one. When he comes, he's gonna tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Listen, in all the scriptures, Jesus usually tries to hide his identity until the moment of his crucifixion and his resurrection. So most people don't know who he is. This is the clearest revelation of his identity in all the scripture. And look who he does it to. An outsider, a cult member, a broken woman. He says, everything you're looking for, I'm he. And I came to you this morning. Listen, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy your thirst. 
C.S. Lewis has this little section in Mere Christianity where he talks about every desire in the human life or the animal kingdom, there's a desire and then there's a way to fulfill that desire. So we get hungry and there's a, such a thing as food. We need to breathe and there's air. We get thirsty and there's water. We have sexual desires and there's a, such a thing as sex. He says this, but if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, why am I never satisfied with sex? Why am I never satisfied with money? Why am, why am I never satisfied even with my, my marriage and my relationship? I always want more. Why am I never satisfied? He says this, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In other words, I was made for eternity. I was made for God. I have a God-sized hole in my soul and he's the only one that can fill it. Listen, if you're thirsty this morning, if you're hungry, Jesus Christ offers you himself by faith. He can fill your soul. He can meet you here. If you're a Christian, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper where Jesus promises to meet us here. Listen, this meal is not a mere symbol. God does something spiritually. God does something supernatural here every single week when we're, he's meeting us here. He's feeding us spiritually. He's quenching our thirst as we take the bread that represents his body and we take the cup that represents his blood and we eat this meal, reminding ourselves that we have been adopted into the family of God and it took the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to do so. Let me pray for us. Father God, I do thank you for this encounter that shows us the heart of God. I thank you for Jesus who perfectly reveals to us what you're like and he is, and you are gracious and kind, that you are forgiving and slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love, that you offer grace to those who ask for the gift, that you are the thirst quencher. I ask even in this moment that you would quench our spiritual thirst. Give us what we were made for. Give us more of yourself. St. Augustine said that our hearts that we were made by you and that you made our hearts for you and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I pray that our hearts would find that rest in you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.